Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink. And this is Christogenia Saturdays. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Today is Saturday, July 5th, 2014. Tonight, we are probably going to discuss a lot of misunderstood words. The first of these is the word radical. The word originally meant to get to the root of something. For instance, a radical meaning of a word provided by a lexicon is the most basic meaning of the word, stripped away from all the allegories and metaphors. Something radical is something which comes from the base or the stem of a thing. And therefore we have Brother Ryan. A long-time Christian identity student and scholar in his own right, who has some very radical views. However, he is a radical in the original sense of the word. On YouTube, therefore, he goes by the name Radical Ryan. Ryan has been known to us for quite some time. And especially to my wife, Melissa, who has known him for much longer than I have. We have been hoping to have him here one day, and here he is tonight, to talk about his radical views of Christian governance, views which, when compared with the word of of our God, found in Scripture, are indeed radical in the original sense of the word. And that's what I pray he is here to explain. Hello, Ryan. It's great to have you. Hell Christ, and thank you for having me. <laughs> Hell Christ. If you could turn your volume up just a little, because I can't adjust. Okay. Right. Can you hear me now? Oh, that's better. All right. <laughs> How are you doing this evening? I am doing great, brother. I, I enjoyed the songs you played, and uh, there's a lot of hidden meaning in those lyrics. I know the gentleman that sings them, and uh, the... Uh, a meaning behind those words, and he is a fellow Christian identity believer. Well, that was, um, they were both from a band called American Legion, and the first song was called Sapphire, and the second song, which had the, the, the news clip concerning the end of the First World War from, from San Francisco, at the beginning the end, was called Uncle Sam. Correct. Sapphire. Uh, is a song in tribute to the late Pastor Richard Butler, founder of Aryan Nations. That's For those of you, yes. Um, I would also like to say, Kiggy, to those brothers that are listening, and God give us men, sun-crowned men itself. Um, I'm not sure where you want to start tonight, brother. Um, what I was going to do is read a couple of quotes from a Christian identity writer that greatly influenced me in my radical beliefs, if you will. One is a quote from his book, In the Beginning, the Story of the International Trade Cartel, written in 1995. And in the foreword of the book, he wrote a statement that really struck to my heart and explained a lot of things to me. And it goes like this. The merchant must establish a king to protect him 
and promote his interests. Now, the author of that book is, of course, Richard Kelly Hoskins. And when I read your writing back in, uh, I think it was 2010, when I read your writing, uh, Brother Bill, titled, There Is No Political Solution, and thinking of sermons that have been preached in the past by uh, late but great Christian identity men, pastors, we may not agree with everything they said, but reading and, or listening to some of the things that they said uh, in regards to our people and how our society should be ordered, such men as Sheldon Emery. He said, ministers of God, and this was in reference to Romans chapter 13, ministers of God, not to operate under anyone else's law, but the law of the great God Almighty. The late pastor uh, Bertrand Capre said, the laws of God are totally superior to anything that we have. The late Pete Peters said, God never allowed government to make law. They were to enforce his laws. Now, I'm going to go back to some quotes by Richard Kelly Hoskins. He said, Adam Mann was created to rule himself and the world around him as king and priest in strict obedience to the law of the king of kings without any outside help. God made man in his own image to rule the world. God put his law in his heart and made him king and priest. To escape his responsibilities to rule as king and priest, man has delegated his responsibility to others. As prophesied, the result has been disastrous. Man has been reduced to being an animal, to be butchered as it pleases his rulers. His land, his work, his products, and his blessings all have been taken by others. And I began to see a common theme through Christian identity. Uh, there was the late, uh, I can't say his first name, but John Rushdunay, Rush, uh, I believe is how you pronounce his name. Yes, I, I really don't know. It's Rushduni, Rushdunay. Yeah, something like that. He had a statement I've got written, uh, the quote here, in theocracy, which is something that I totally support, in theocracy, God and his law rule. The state ceases to be the overlord and the ruler of man. I say, this is my own Brother Ryan quote here, I say that man cannot write law. Only God can write law or make law. Well, well that's absolutely agreeable. We have to understand what when um, contemplating passages such as Romans chapter 13, that the children of Israel were put off in seven times of punishment. They had demanded an earthly king. Now, when they demanded an earthly king, Yahweh, God, gave them their wish, but also told them, gave them a list of warnings, which indicated that they certainly were not going to like what, we, what they were going to get. When they were put off in punishment, divorced from God, they were decreed, and this is substantiated in the Revelation, in the book of, in the book of Daniel, and in the book of Leviticus. They were decreed a period of seven times punishment under earthly tyrannies. And when Christ came, 
and, and, and the apostles gave out their message, which includes Romans chapter 13, Christ came only about one-fifth of the time into that seven times of punishment. That seven times of punishment, maybe one-fourth. It started six to seven hundred years before the time of Christ. It had 1,800 years left at the time of Christ. And God's word does not change. Christ wasn't here to take Israel out of the already decreed seven times of punishment. Yes, he was here to show Israel the way to true Christian liberty and the way to reconciliation with God. But the bride doesn't become the bride until the consummation at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's at the end of the story. That's in Revelation chapter 19. So when, when we read Romans chapter 13, we have to understand that Paul is talking about earthly governments during Israel's seven times of punishment. Because government is a product, earthly government is a product of the sins of men. And therefore, God uses earthly government to chastise men in their sin. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 13. Exactly. Government is a curse, a curse upon us for our sin. It's exactly correct. Um, that is why uh, when we awaken and understand that uh, we worry about uh, the non-white hordes born in here, immigration, we, people get distracted with all these political issues back and forth, and all the, um, the cable network shows, the political radio talk shows, and all of this type of stuff, so many Israelites, so many of our white brethren are so, uh, they're, well, it is a Babylonian. It's a confusion. They're, it's uh, at each other's throats. So you've got the left and the right fighting each other. And all this confusion because they want to make, they want, they want their own form of a king system, if you will, a state system or statist system, instead of recognizing that man cannot make law in uh, what a legislator is as a lawmaker, uh, well, supposedly makes laws. But we know that, as it says like in Isaiah 33:22, that God is our lawmaker. He is our king. It tells us uh, in uh, such places as uh, Psalms 19 that God's law is perfect. Um, the, one of the things that uh, I think keeps our people divided in each other's throats is indeed the political spectrum and the chaos that goes on, the fighting and the arguing, the fussing and the fighting, all these types of things. Uh, even among Christian identists, they'll talk about we need to vote for this person, we need to do this, we need to do that, uh, instead of saying what we are supposed to be doing as ambassadors of the kingdom of God is to be pointing, to, pointing towards God's law. I don't care what, a, what a, a group of men that call themselves government, I don't care what they decree is legal or illegal. What man makes legal or illegal, that's Babylonian law system. Our people need to start looking to God's law. There is only one law, that is God's law. The legalistic system of men and their state of systems, as you know, Brother Bill, go back to ancient Babylon and, and further back. Those legalistic systems have to do with, like, as Richard Kelly Hoskins points out in his book in the beginning, 
uh, it has to do with protecting the merchant. The merchant must establish a king or a status system to protect him and promote his his uh, international trade, if you will, the trade routes of, of the ancient uh, empires and worlds. It's it has nothing to do with right or wrong or morality or anything like that. Well, well, that's actually um, it, it's explained in Revelation chapter thirteen. In in well, very often the word of God is very brief, but it's very yeah. powerful. And and in Revelation chapter thirteen, we see that the dragon gives its power to the beast. That all of these beast empires which we had in antiquity and, and these empires which we have in modern times understanding the real forces behind the british empire the american empire it was always the international merchants the dragon satan which gave its power which threw its economic weight behind one king or another to raise that king above all the surrounding kings and build an empire for the purposes of world governance and, and trade, free trade, and, and that's the drag. That, that's how the revelation describes it. The dragon gives it, gives its power to the beast. Correct. I was going to. I want to share some more quotes that may be uh, little known, but they are documented. Uh, they're quotes by a gentleman, uh, the late Robert Miles, and. Uh, any Klansmen listening will be very familiar with Bob Miles. Um, here's some quotes. He said, we want to be left alone. Don't put your devil laws upon our back. We are truly opposed to all centralized power on earth. To us, our God is our king. If you believe in governments, then you're going in circles. We have been termed Christian anarchists, and we have never felt that was an insult. That's a fellow Klansman saying he was a Christian anarchist and saying that if you go get wrapped up in these political uh, systems and elections and all that, you're going in circles. The absence – this is the finish of this quote. The absence of world power is the difference between a peaceful and tranquil society and the devil's rule, the devil-invented government. And that's from Bob Miles on his appearance, The Race and Reason cable access show with uh, Tom Metzger in the 80s. Another quote comes from the Metropolitan Detroit Magazine, June 1987, in reference to the FBI. Bob Miles said, they pictured me as a threat to the nation, but let me tell you the kind of threat I am. I publish a newsletter. I don't harm or threaten anyone. Granted, I don't like the government. I'm an anarchist, in fact. That's a fellow Klansman, a very well-known Klansman of modern history, who on at least two occasions he understood what anarchism was. He understood the difference between a, a, a system run by, by God and his law and man's made-up governments. Yeah, you know, that, that's very good, and, and, and that's fine. But most of our listeners, and, and I'm sure that you have some people here in the talk show chat, I see some, some new names that, that I'm sure of. Are, are your friends, but most of my listeners probably don't know what you mean by the term anarchy because the term was very highly soiled in the 19th century by Jews and especially in the early 20th century, and, and it's become one of those dirty words like communism, it, it, right. and, and, and most people will say, oh, he's an anarchist. 
I don't want anything to do with that. Now, now I agree with your political philosophy 100%, but I don't use your labels. And, and that's just because we come from two totally different perspectives. And, and, and um, to, to me, Christianity is the, it, it encapsulates the idea that only Christ is king. And, and nobody else could be our king. That earthly governments are here for our punishment. And, and as Paul says, what, when men are, are good and pious and God-fearing, the government will not punish them. Because the government is really a tool in, in the hands of our God to chastise us. And we get the government that we deserve. So to me, only Christ is king. To me, Christianity is ethnic nationalism. To me, Christianity is socialism, small s, non-Marxist, original socialism. Um, to me, Christianity is um, anti-libertarian. To me, Christianity is anti-capitalist materialism. And I've written papers on all of those topics on, on Christogenia. There are articles I've written that explain my entire paradigm in, 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 those, in those articles is explained on Christogenia. I don't know if you've had the chance to read anything, but there is no political solution. But when I describe myself politically, I'm a Christian. And the problem is that people don't know what I mean by that, just like they don't know what you mean by saying that you're an anarchist. So can you take the time now to explain what you mean by the term anarchist? Sure. Um, I, I use different terms. It depends on who I'm speaking with. There are a lot of white Israelites that understand what, what I mean by anarchy, and they've been drawn to the political circles or philosophies or lack of political <laughs> philosophy circles that uh, they call themselves non-statists, they call themselves anti-statists, they call themselves tribalists, they call themselves voluntarists. Uh, they call themselves um, anarchists, um, they call themselves localists, whatever. There's even uh, some people that call themselves national anarchists because they believe in racial separatism, but they are anarchists. Uh, they believe in preservation of their ethnicity and, and, and the such, their race, their ethnicity, their culture, their local culture, all of that. Um, anarchy comes from the Greek term anarchos, and you know Greek. Um, the an is no, our course is ruler, and it just simply means no ruler. The first person that we know of that used uh, the term in describing what he believed was a, a French man named Pierre-Joseph Proudhon. He lived in the 1800s. Now, Proudhon is known even on the Internet, uh, uh, the modern, uh, some of these uh, pseudo-anarchists, they don't like to admit it. So Proudhon was what they would call today an anti-Semite. <laughs> he didn't like Jews. And I have this quote here, if you, if you want me to read it. But he didn't like uh, Jews. There was the Russian anarchist, uh, Mikhail Volkanen, who uh, uh, at first thought maybe he could work with Karl Marx. He found out Karl Marx was, had another agenda, and he spoke out against Karl Marx and the Jews. So he is also considered an anti-Semite. Anarchy is just a simple, another word for saying you don't believe in statism. You don't believe in a state system or government. Just like you can use the word voluntarist, you can use the word folkish. Christian is, even that term Christian has been slandered, and people, when you say Christian, they think uh, all kinds of things. You say you're a Christian, 
and uh, people find out you have racist beliefs or what have you, they don't understand that. So terms themselves, I don't run from terms. Instead, I use the terms as they, as they are meant. Just like the word patriot, people will think, well, you know, with my ministry, uh, Christian Patriot and Truth Ministry, I have the word patriot, and people will say, well, wait a minute, you know, you, you're not into this, you know, raw, raw, fly the federal flag, uh, all the jingoism and all this, uh, this stuff, so why would you use the word patriot? Well, it's because I understand what the original meaning of the word patriot means, and some people would say, well, no one would understand that, but that's just, it's any word you use, people can misunderstand it. Ultimately, when someone asks me what my beliefs are, I say, well, I'm Christian, I believe in the Bible, but when they ask uh, what I believe about race or something, then I have to explain that, or what I believe about government, or why I don't vote, or whatever, then I have to explain it. The word patriot comes from the, the Middle French, the Lower Latin words, uh, patriota, patros, uh, however you say those words, but they, they basically are translated in English, meaning fellow countrymen, and they come from a Greek, it also comes from the Greek term patris, I believe is how you'd say it, Bill, it means fatherland. So it is indeed uh, blood and soil. So to me, patriot has nothing to do with, you know, supporting this status Babylonian empire that calls itself the United States government. So I don't run from the term anarchy because I have found it really helps me. I have brought people to uh, Christianity and Christian identity by using such terms as tribalist, anarchy, because I'm not, I, there is a certain segment out there that, of why Israelites that are just so turned off by anything that they th- think is just uh, you know, a Christian ministry, and it could be a great Christian ministry like Christagenia, <laughs> but they at first might be turned off because they're just disgusted with the whole Christian uh, you know, religion thing in itself. And so I seek those uh, Israelites that uh, have been, uh, feel alienated from uh, Christianity in itself, if, if you understand what I mean. Um, so the, the word anarchy, now, uh, with Proudhon, he was a true anarchist. He believed in natural law or moral law. Josiah Warren was what they call, um, he's termed in some history books as America's first anarchist. And Josiah Warren, Warren certainly was no communist or anything like that. Uh, he wrote uh, quite a few books, did a lot of different projects and experiments with alternative currencies that were not state-issued. Uh, he wrote an, a, a booklet called True Civilization in 1863 that explains a lot of his, uh, his beliefs in natural order. Uh, there was Lysander Spooner. Some of your listeners may be familiar with Lysander Spooner. He wrote a couple of, uh, well, one of them's a very, somewhat a famous writing, and the other one isn't so much. But one is titled No Treason, the Constitution of No Authority. And on page 57, he said, but whether the Constitution really be one thing or another, this much is certain that it has either authorized such a government as we have had, or it has been powerless to prevent it. In either case, it's unfit to exist, and I totally agree with him. But when you read what Spooner, by the way, was also well aware of the Rothschilds and the Jewish international banking family, he and Josiah Warren lived in the 1800s. They both lived during the time of the war between the states. They both uh, sympathized with the South because they understood what was going on with the federal tyranny and Abraham, the capitalist Lincoln, who worshipped Henry Clay and his capitalist uh, agenda and uh, all that. But the other writing by Lysander Spooner, which you can read for free on the Internet, is titled Natural Law or the Science of Justice. Now, Josiah Warren and Lysander Spooner both understood natural law. 
just as uh, the first man to ever call himself an anarchist, uh, Proudhon, did. So when you look at that history, the Jews began to really infiltrate the whole non-statist uh, belief system when the Industrial Revolution cranked up in America in the middle of the 1800s. You had that transition of the, the machine age and the factories and things like that. And the Jews began to see that as an opportunity and to do, well, the rest is history, if you will. But the Jews have infiltrated a lot of things and tried to co-opt a lot of things, including the word Christianity, uh, patriot, uh, all, all of these types of things. So what I do is I'll, to, to my fellow whites that I, that I find out here, fellow Israelites, they understand anarchy. They're disgusted with the government, the system. They read books like Lysander Spooner and Josiah Warren and Balkanen, and they, they understand natural law, and they just they don't understand why people would believe in a status system. They see the corruption, et cetera, et cetera. And so I talk to them basically in a language that they understand, and I show them, did you know that anarchy is in the Bible? And some of them may say, well, I've heard of it, but they think that you're an anti-Nominion or something like that, and you have to explain, no, 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 I don't mean – because there were Christian uh, – Christian anarchism goes back to – from what I have been able to find, um, at least the 1400s, 1500s in Europe, in different, uh, different, uh, uh, you know, during different times, ages, uh, with different Christian sects, uh, they were they basically didn't believe in a status system ruling over them. Of course, not all of them were anti-Nominion. Here in America, in colonial America in the 1600s, there were Christians that were anarchists. And because they dared to buck the system, if you will, they would get uh, they they got threatened with being kicked out of the colonies. They got uh, exiled to Rhode Island, and uh, many of them were Christian. It's just that they didn't see the formalized puritanical control. Uh, they came here for freedom, you know, from uh, the, the the state church churches of Europe. They come here and then they run into the the, the puritanical statist systems uh, of what was going on, and so they would speak out against that, and then, of course, they got in trouble for that. And basically, uh, it's, it's the belief that um, Yahweh God has created the Adam man, Adam kind, uh, to be free, and we have always had this urging uh, throughout our history of our people, throughout the history of Europe and, and here in just you know, current times, there are people that are yearning to be free, white Israelites that are, just have a natural instinct to be free, and they know something is wrong, and they either go down some sort of statist uh, ideology and belief system, and they're crying out for a new king, <laughs> some new type of government, a white nationalist government, or let's get back to the original constitution, and some of them want to raise up another national socialist state, but here in America. And they're not seeing the bigger picture that until we bow our knee to God, accept that he is our king, accept that his law is all the legislation we need. We don't need to elect men to write laws for us. We've got all the law we need. But yes, uh, government is indeed a punishment. Uh, Proverbs 28.2 uh, speaks of the sins of the land, brings on us many princesses or governments uh, or governors. Um, and, and of course, we've got so many. When, this, when the Constitution was ratified... Uh, uh, in 1789, there was only three felonies, treason, 
uh, pirating and counterfeiting. And today we've got close to 5,000 federal uh, laws on the books. And this is a, a result, like you were pointing out, Bill, that's a result of our sin, our wickedness. We don't, we, as a people, we keep trying to run from God's law. And so God says, okay, then all this will help man, <laughs> the merchant, the merchant class, if you will, to raise up kings among you and just keep raising princes of, among you or governors and uh, laws of oppression on you. It is indeed a punishment. And my ministry is to point that out. That's what I focus on to those uh, Israelites that, uh, you know, they see a lot of things that are wrong. They're not into the Tea Party. They're not into communism. They're not into national socialism. They're not into co- constitutionalism. All of these things, they know something's wrong. And when you point it out and you say there's a bigger picture and you show them from the scriptures, first, their identity, their racial identity. And then you show them and explain to them that Yahweh God meant for his people to, to serve his law, to look to the scriptures for our legislation, to look to it for our law, and to represent that law. Well, well that is absolutely true. And, and, and if you don't mind, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the children of Israel demanded a king. And, and Yahweh said, okay, you want a king? You're going to get a king. In, in Hosea chapter 13, after several hundred years of that failed experiment, I think this would be about 300 years, and in Hosea 13:4, we read, Yet I am Yahweh thy God from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt know no God but me. For there is no Savior beside me. And I'll skip to verse 9. O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. I will be thine king. Where is any other that thou that, that may save thee in all thy cities? And thy judges of whom thou saidst, Give me a king and princes. I gave thee a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. And from that point, Israel was sent off into 2,500 years or seven times of punishment when they would be ruled over by this series of beast empires, which didn't, which didn't end until the, the, the dawn of, of the 18th century. And at the dawn of the 18th century, for the most part, or the late 17th, I'm sorry, yeah, the late 18th century or the dawn of the 19th, we entered into a period of self-government. But I believe that prophetically, that's the time of Jacob's trouble, where Esau breaks the yoke and rules or has the dominion over Jacob. I just wrote about this in a paper on Christogenia called A Hundred Years of Slavery. That period is the time of Jacob's trouble, and we're in it now. It corresponds to Revelation 17:17, where we, we were told that we would hand our kingdom, we would hand our kingdom over to the beast. That's exactly what we did. We broke free of 2,500 years of tyranny. We thought that we had liberty in our United States Constitution and, and other docu- documents of the period. We thought we could govern ourselves, and guess what? the devil rules over us again. 
and we volunteered ourselves into it this time. We can't rule ourselves. It's a long, hard lesson. We can't be ruled by an earthly king. Only God is our king. Christ said, no man can serve two masters, and, and, and that's absolutely true, but Christ said that knowing that we had another two, cent, two, two millennia of punishment to face as a people for being disobedient to him. So we look forward to, to a time of restoration where God will be our king again. And, and the model of, of um, the, the correct model of, of government decreed by God, you yourself have pointed out, was decreed in... in in, in the, the run-up to the judges period what, where God would be our king and, and we would not have an earthly king. In Deuteronomy uh, 17, 18, it even, it, it, this is prophetic, it's talking about a king. If, if you, they ended up getting a king, which they did what, over 450 years later after the judges period, it says here, it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book. So even if you have a king, the law is already written. See, here in America, we elect legislators, lawmakers. That's what a politician is. So you're saying, here, write me some more law. Well, he's going to write law. Man's going to come up and make up all these weird policies and laws and things that we have to obey, blah, blah, blah. Instead of looking at God, we, well, God's already given us a law. And I think that when we, look, when we shed free and shed ourselves of all this distraction of you know, political issues and, oh, we need to do something about the immigration, we need to write a law, we need this, we need that. No, we need to look at God's law, what's in the Bible. Man's law, like I said, man cannot write law. Like you said, we cannot rule ourselves. And when the Constitution, what the Constitution was, was man's attempt uh, you know, I, I do believe that many of the founding fathers were indeed Christians and meant well, but that's man's attempt to try to – he was supposed to, as I just read here in Deuteronomy, that the government is supposed to go by the law that's already written and not try to insult God and make up all these weird laws. And, and uh, we are owned – we ultimately – Yahweh God gave us the earth, but yet governments arbitrarily claim to own the land underneath your feet – what's under the land, like the minerals or whatever, and even the air, as in flying an airplane or whatever, above that land. But that land was given to us. We are, we, uh, we Adamic people, the land is ours. But government has to lay claim to the land, therefore just arbitrarily laying claim to the land within its drawn-out borders, it automatically assumes, and arbitrarily so, ownership over you. So the thing of it that I explain to people is you are either owned by God and you submit to him and his laws, or you're going to be owned by man and submit to his crazy corporate policies he calls laws. Governments of men are nothing but paper fictions. They're corporations. The Constitution, legally speaking, ask any lawyer, is nothing but a charter. It's a founding charter for a corporation called the United States Federal Government. It was just created. It's a paper fiction. When you create something, a DBA or a business, you get a business uh, charter and you set it up and you set up how you're going to have that business run with an executive officer and all the, a board of trustees, whatever it is, that is a corporate fiction. 
It's a legalism that comes from Babylon, and I, the Constitution is a legalism document. Well, well, the men that wrote the Constitution certainly had, for the most part, good intentions. It's, yes, sir, I believe that. A document that was, that was destined to fail. The right. men who wrote the Constitution or, or who set the, um, the, the ideas that there were the trendsetters, the idea makers, the philosophy writers of the time, were divided amongst themselves, these founding fathers. They were divided amongst themselves into two camps. Thomas Paine, and, and I wish I had had the, the notes here handy tonight. I'm sorry, Christogenia, my, my website is like a million and a half files, and, and I need time to get these things together. I didn't expect to need it. But last year here with Pastors Ken Lent and Mark Downey, we did a program on the, the Founding Fathers and the Constitution. And, and I, I quoted from Thomas Paine's writing where he imagined that the law of God was the law of the land and that the government, that the new government, should only seek to uphold the law of God or give the people the ability to uphold the law of God. Now, Thomas Paine was an anti-federalist, and, and I know what the Jews say about Thomas Paine being a deist and all that garbage. Thomas Paine was a Bible-believing Christian who believed the law of God was the law of the land. And, and being an anti-federalist, he was against a strong central federal government which could rule over the people. Well, the anti-federalists lost the, the, the battle in, in the long run by far, and, and the federalists eventually won out. And, and what we have now is the inevitable tyranny which resulted from the victory of the federalists. That's right. Patrick Henry, the man that everyone knows, is saying, give me liberty or give me death, which, by the way, that's an excerpt from a speech he gave inside of a church. <laughs> Very Christian man. He was a, also an anti-federalist. And uh, of the Constitution being ratified and that going on, the convention there, he said, I smell a rat. That's what he said. I smell a rat. He wouldn't, had nothing to do with the Constitution. Samuel Adams, the man that Thomas Jefferson said, uh, gave credit as being the man that single-handedly got the revolution underway. Uh, Samuel Adams wanted nothing to do with the Constitution. Uh, they seen the document for the legalistic corporate charter that it was. They seen the the rat that it was. They seen the monster that it was going to give birth to. Um, there's some. I want to point out some scripture here because these are scriptures that I use when I'm ministering or witnessing to uh, fellow Israelites and uh, using. Uh, I use these. Uh, Versus to introduce them to the fact that this instinct that they have, this draw for freedom. And, of course, when I talk about – by the way, anarchy is not chaos. Chaos is chaos. Anarchy is not communism. Okay? That's, some, that's Karl Marxism. <laughs> Mikhail Balkanin, the Russian anarchist, hated Karl Marx and uh, said that Karl Marx was indeed working for the, uh, the Jew bankers, his fellow Jew bankers is actually what he said. Um, Jeremiah 31, 33, and it'd be 38, 33 in the Septuagint, says uh, God would put his laws into our minds and hearts. 2 Corinthians 3, 3 speaks of the law being in the fleshy tables of our hearts as opposed to uh, you know, stone tables or tablets. 
Romans 2, 14 through 15 speaks of even the, the dispersed, the Israelite dispersia uh, that were at that time, of course, um, uh, uh, divorced of Yahweh and, and uh, were in you know, what they would call the barbarian nations. Uh, Romans 2, 14 to 15 speak of, by nature, these people who, who, you know, these pagans, keep the law. They are a law unto themselves, which show or prove the law is written in their hearts and consciousness. That's Romans 2, 14 to 15. Um, and, you know, that tells me that, indeed, the moral law of God is in the Adamic race. It is in the Israelite people. Another uh, thing that well, I like to... If I can interject real quick... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Law written on our on, on the hearts of Christian men, that was what the founders perceived as the natural law of man. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Natural law, you know, Thomas Aquinas, he he was a natural law philosopher. Natural law, the philosophy of natural law, um, you know, that's what they're saying is it is indeed the spirit. I use what I say in my YouTube videos and in my ministry is that it's basically the spirit of the law that's in your heart, and the letter of the law is in, indeed, the, the Bible. Uh, you know, Thomas Aquinas had, uh, he, he believed in natural rights. Uh, so did John Locke. Uh, these different men, the philosophers of, of natural law, they understood that it was instinctual within us, and we, being Christian identity, understand that even more so, that that is indeed, it was indeed put in us um, from the Christogenia, Jacob, well, well, be James, right? Uh, chapter four. It says, uh, let's see, verse twelve. There is one lawgiver. There's only one lawgiver. That's what it says. And judge. So, <laughs> you know. And then you look at Isaiah thirty-three twenty-two. God's our lawgiver. He's our king. Psalms nineteen seven through nine tells us that God's law, His statutes, His ordinances are perfect. But I was going to prove, uh, uh, this is something else I use to prove when I'm talking to uh, Israelites that don't know they're Israel yet. <laughs> um, when I, I tell them, I point to them, I'll say, if they are already aware, or if they're not, I point it out, that even inside the legalistic system, the common law system of Europe and here in America, the common law tradition, the legal court systems, they recognize certain automatic, instinctual, uh, internal principles of right and wrong, and they they put them in Latin terms. One is actus reus. Actus reus is an inherently wrongful act, okay, a wrongful act in itself. It's just wrong, like rape or murder or whatever. Then there's mens rea, wrongful motive or intent. Uh, this also includes a depraved mind, um, just not giving not giving a damn, driving down the road, you know, drunk, reckless, don't care, on purpose. That's also covered under mens rea. Now, according to even the legal systems of, of kings in Europe and the legalistic system here in America, the justice system so-called, you have for something to be a crime, you have to have actus reus, inherently wrongful act, something that's just flat out everybody would agree is wrong, and mens rea and a wrongful intent. Because if you have an, an, a wrongful act, but there was no mens rea, or wrongful motive, then it's not necessarily a crime. And then you have malum in se, which is a wrong, in it, an act wrong in itself. It's wrong to do, uh, and it was wrongly done. You have the Latin term millum, crinum, and leash, and I don't speak Latin, so I'll, I'll pronounce it the best I can, and it simply means no crime without a law. 
You have malum prohibitum, wrong only because it's pro- uh, prohibited. And then the other one that a lot of people are very familiar with, it's just a principle, I don't have a Latin term for it, but it's basically there's no victim, there's no crime. So, you know, not putting on your seatbelt is not a crime, all right? Um, it's not something against Yahweh's law, so it's not a crime. It's just it's wrong because some corporation calling itself, you know, the local county or state government or whatever has decreed it to be wrong, and they will use force and violence upon you if you don't pay your uh, your ticket for not putting on your seatbelt, just to use that as an example. But, well, that's, that's the truth. That's because government has become a business, and, and that business seeks ways to create revenue. And, and, yes, and yes, all of these yes. silly rules and, and regulations that they create, well, which are certainly not crimes at all, there's no crime about running a red light if you don't hit anybody, but, but I, we can understand the need to regulate traffic. However, sure. I can understand the seatbelt law, and, and that's a victimless crime. It's not even a crime. It's just a way for them to, to control us, control every facet of our lives, and to raise revenue. Well, you can have it with uh, you know, the gun law. You have the cannabis law. Before the outlawing of cannabis, which used to be legal in this country, and 80% of the medicines, including cough medicine, during the colonial period, the time of George Washington, contained cannabis. And it was just used as a good medicine. Uh, the well, hemp just used... I think we spoke before about the merchants yes. um, behind the government, and that's the reason for the cannabis laws. The, right, I was going to get to that. The DuPonts, they had yes. to get rid of cannabis. Yes, DuPont, absolutely. And that's the point uh, that uh, I got. I was blessed. I just I got it. I was blessed to read those words by Richard Kelly Hoskins where he said the merchant creates the king or creates the state system to protect him. Um, th- these are things we point this out, and we're showing that in the Bible, governments are always tied to money, to riches, to the merchant. We know that the word Canaanite comes from the Hebrew Kenite, meaning merchant. The, the Bible, as you eloquently explain and go into exhaustive detail, showing the, the economic tie to the beast system and in uh, Revelation and in behind the government systems, these are businesses, these are, it's all about money-making. Whether you have a seatbelt law or not, all governments are created by the merchant to protect the merchant and his business. And that goes back to the ancient city-states of ancient Sumer, uh, later, uh, Babylon, the city-states of ancient, uh, ancient Indian uh, city-states, Greece, and, and uh, you had uh, the Grecan and uh, the, the, the Athenian, I'm sorry, the Athenian and the Spartan city-states. And what did they fight? They fought fratricidal wars against each other over what? Trade routes and things like Trade that. Routes and forms of government. Forms of government was the big one. The, the Athenians were a democracy. In, in right. a different sense than the modern word. And, and the Spartans were an oligarchy. Yes. And they were both competing to, to um, project their form of government throughout the, throughout the known world of their time. Right. And it, it was centered, but it ultimately was centered around, see, the status philosophies, communist, capitalist, democracy, republic, uh, all the different status systems and monarchies, all these status systems are indeed based on economics and flow of economics, you see. Whereas God's law, God's uh, lawful system and true government for his people that he willed for his people, was indeed tied to worship of him 
and moral law that he gave us. And they lived under what I tell people is basically the period of judges was something like 400, 450 years. The period of judges was basically what you would call a theocratic, anarchist, or non-ruler system. And instead what they had is they had their uh, local leaders, they had their tribal leaders. They weren't rulers, they were leaders. Uh, they had the Le- Levitical priests. They had their elders. You know, the Bible talks about going before the elders of the gate, and uh, it, well, it teaches us to respect our elders. I believe that the commandment, thou shalt honor thy father and mother, the spirit of that law is that we are to uh, respect uh, our leaders, our elders. Not, I'm not talking about rulers. I'm talking about people that we believe have some wisdom, uh, and the such, and our people as our people, and Bill, you're, you're, <laughs> yeah, you know history a lot, uh, a lot more than I do, but uh, during the times of our people, we Christian identists, we love our migration maps, and during that period of time, you, you, the different migrations of the Samurai and the, and the uh, Saxon and the Goths and all these uh, different uh, uh, tribal branches of the white Israelite race, during those times, they didn't. During the migration and moving period and establishing into Europe and such, they had a tribal system. They had they had their uh, they had their tribal chieftains or kings, but they weren't like the kings that later developed in Europe, with uh, you know the big fat king with all the riches and the big beautiful mansion called a castle. What they had was tribal leaders and chieftains, kind of like like you know Moses would then. <laughs> Like Joshua, these are leaders. Uh, like you know, you, your intro music is from Braveheart. That these uh, Robert the Bruce, these are chieftains. My name, Orion, is uh, Gaelic, and it means small leader or small tribal king. That's or chief. Um, it's not a ruler. Now our people had different assemblies, and when I re- read this stuff in history, I think of what it says in the Bible about the council of elders, and then I think about what these people that are true anarchists, not the communists calling themselves anarchists, but the people that are really interested in non-status society ruled by natural law, natural moral law, they, uh, they talk about having these third-party arbitration courts. You're going to have to have these arbitration courts. You had them in judges. That's what the judges were. <laughs> um, if you had a problem, you brought it to your local uh, council of judges and elders in the sort. If you had an issue... Uh, dispute over, uh, you know, was a business dispute or your neighbor was way too loud and you need a third party to settle the issue or there was a question of who, you know, who broke in whose uh, tent or, you know, or whatever. There was a question of who committed a crime. That's what you had these assemblies for. Our people, the Israelite people in Dispersia, they had types of assemblies like that. You had the assembly of the white tan or the wise men. Uh, you had the Althing that a lot of people know about. It's called the Althing. Uh, the, which the, the Vikings, the Old Norse, Icelandic people had. Uh, the Germans, the Anglo-Saxons had a thing called a Volkmut. Uh, the Slavics had a thing called Vichy. Now, I have a hard time with this word, but this was a Gothic tribal councils, and it's called Tervene. I don't know exactly how to pronounce it, but it's T-E-R-V-I-N-G-I, and you had the, they were a judgeship. They were a council of, of elders and uh, that you would bring if you needed you need an arbitration court. And so when I see these white is see, here's the thing. You cannot be a white racist and not and say you believe in white power. You cannot be a white Christian identist and, 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 and all that 
and not truly, really love your people. And I see within the white Israelite people that are frustrated with the government, and I see the different things that are instinctual within them, and I, I admire that, and I see that there are people that are frustrated. Yeah, they may not understand the Bible right now. Yeah, they may not understand the racial message in the Bible. But you talk to them in language that they understand, and they are frustrated. It is my opinion and my belief that it is a time of awakening, a, a, another awakening. Bill, you and I have talked about this before. It's a time of awakening for our people. It's a, they're starting to not only awaken to the Israelite message, the racial message in the Bible, they're starting to awaken to what it means to be an Israelite. It means to, Jesus told, told us to love our brothers and to look out for one another. Um, I agree with the principles of national socialism, but I don't want a national socialist state. I agree with some of the principles of the Bill of Rights or the Magna Carta, for that matter. I agree with those principles. I believe that's a genetic urging within the white Adamic Israelite race to be free, and our people are seeking this freedom, and they first had to go through these different, like you talk about now with Jacob's Trouble, these are periods of time where our people waking up, beginning to see that, no, we can't do it ourselves, but there is a better way, and go and look back to the Bible, understand who they are and what their call is. I believe America is the land of regathered Israel. I believe America uh, is, is New Jerusalem. And I believe that, you, Bill, you and I talked about this, that we believe that this truth will emanate from America throughout to the other Israelites that are scattered abroad. We have to recognize our identity and then recognize what it means to be an Israelite. Well, well yes, it seems that the, the true Christian Israel identity as um, Clifton and I often call it, um, it does seem to emanate out from America to, to Europe. And, and we reach a lot of Europeans with it and, and Australians and Canadians. British Israel is a broken and bankrupt. It, it doesn't even um, deserve the title Christian identity. That, that, right. that They don't have any clue of identity. It, it was a... Um, it was an immature version of what we consider Christian identity today, which was really, it really stopped once its proponents, it stopped growing once its proponents could um, use it to legitimize that their ideas of British um, empiricism, British imperialism. And, and, and they chauvinism. further, they never developed it, they never matured in their theology, they can't support it. They can't uphold it. They're laughing stocks to British Israel people. It, it's a shame, but they are. You, you had some. Um, I'd like to move on to a million different topics with you. You had some quotes from the anarchist Bakunin that I think I interrupted before you could get them out. And maybe you could enlighten people because Bakunin was one of the more famous anarchists of the 19th century. I think he has a very bad image in, in, in um, popular literature. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I just haven't read enough. But, but um, you have some quotes from his writing which might reveal why he has that bad image in popular literature. Right. Well, now, understand, I do not, uh, uh, I'm not, uh, when it comes to these men, I do admire Lysander Spooner. I really like his lesser-known writing, 
natural law or the science of justice. Um, he, I, I, I really get into that kind of stuff about natural law and things like that. I, I see Yahweh and his design and those sort of things. But um, I, it's not that, uh, you know, I take everything Lysander Spooner said or Josiah Warren, Balkanen, uh, or Bakunin and, I, uh, and uh, uh, Pierre Proudhon and, and uh, some of the other anarchists that I sometimes quote from, or anyone that I quote from in history, doesn't mean that I support everything they said or did. I just it, I see a urging within our people, a craving that's there. It's instinctual, and uh, I, I just to me, uh, it's like you, you see a, a fellow Israelite and they make a statement. And it's like there for a moment they had a, a very a moment of clarity, if you will. Balkanet, uh, like many anarchists, were I guess disgusted with religion in general, and Balkanet uh, was very anti uh, anti religion in, in, in the in the general sense. And I guess perhaps it was because of the what he had seen with the corporate church systems even of his time. But yeah, here's some extensive quotes, but your listeners do need to he- hear them because these are uh, quotes that. Uh, that Mr. Balkan had said. Now, he at first thought, oh, you know, Karl Marx, he was a fellow non-statist, maybe I can work with him. <laughs> okay, this is what he said. Marx is a Jew and is surrounded by a crowd of little or more or less intelligent, scheming, agile, speculating Jews, just as Jews are everywhere, commercial and banking agents, writers, politicians, correspondents for newspapers of all shades, in short, literary brokers, just as they are financial brokers, with one foot in the bank and the other in the socialist movement, and their arses sitting upon the German press. They have grabbed hold of all the newspapers, and you can imagine what a nauseating literature is the outcome of it. Now this entire Jewish world, which constitutes an exploiting sect, a people of leeches, of, I can't say this word, a voracious parasite, Marx feels an instinctive inclination and a great respect for the Rothschilds. This may seem strange. What could there be in common between communism and high finance? The communism of Marx seeks a strong state centralization, and where this exists, there must inevitably exist a state central bank. And where this exists, that parasitic Jewish nation which speculates upon the labor of the people, will always find means for its existence. In reality, this would be for the proletariat a a Baroque regime under which the working men and working women converted into a uniform mass would rise, fall asleep, work, and live at the beat of the drum. The privilege of ruling would be in the hands of the skilled and the learned, with a wide scope left for profitable crooked deals carried on by the Jews, who would be attracted by the enormous extension of the international speculations of the national banks. Well, well, right, and this is good. This is good. It's good to see how these men felt about these things. That not because we're going to follow these men. We should not follow them. We should learn from their mistakes that we can't follow them. But it's good to, to see this because these are men who thought outside of the box. Here's another man that first called himself, he was the first one to ever call himself an, an anarchist, and, your, and your, leader, your, your listeners need to hear this quote. This is by Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, and he wrote this in his personal notebook in 1847. The first man to ever call himself an anarchist, a Frenchman. 
Jews, this race that poisons everything by sticking its nose into everything without ever mixing with any other people, demand its expulsion from France, abolish synagogues and not admit them in any employment, finally pursue the abolition of its religion. It's not without cause that Christians call them deicide. The Jew is the enemy of humankind. They must be sent back to Asia or exterminated by steel or by fire or by expulsion. The Jew must disappear. That man called himself, he was the first man to call himself an anarchist, and I like that. <laughs> well, well it's, it, it's right. What we, I hate Jews. I absolutely, I absolutely hate Jews. They are destructive, uh, uh, parasitic, uh, parasitic people. They are false. They are not anarchists. What they are, you had the Emma Goldmans and these scumbag Jews that came around, started calling themselves anarchists, and they, the Haymarket Square type thing with the bomb throwing and all this. That's the type of people that, that call themselves anarchists from the, from the industrial age on. They want to re- reduce all of us to what, gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen? The worker. They refer to you as the worker. What do corporations refer to their employees as? Human resources. You're a cog in the machine. We don't want to be cogs in the machine. We don't want to be human resources or goyim or cattle. Okay? Beasts of burden. Marxism and, and capitalism are both products of Talmudism. Yes, sir. Absolutely. No doubt. Marxism and, Marxism and capitalism are two heads of the same dragon. There's, yes, sir. That now, that these quotes from Proudhon and, and Bakunin, that, that, these are men, I don't really like Proudhon as, as for what he accomplished because he did get power in France and had no idea what to do with it. And he right. failed miserably. That was, um, it was probably and, a shame. And, and why was that, Bill? Well, well I, I discussed that from the pages of, of Nesta Webster some time ago, and from what I saw, it was both poor execution and not getting the people behind a cause. That well, I'll tell you why. Started. Because he, he didn't put Yahweh's law. Well, of course. But every government of man is going to fail, especially without God, there's no doubt. Whether it's a, it's a stateless society, you know, an anarchist, tribalistic society, or it's... Uh, uh, you know, got a big, strong, heavy, strong state like National Socialist Germany. If you don't put God first, Yahweh's law, and enforce his law, that's what the kings are supposed to do is enforce his law. That's the law they're supposed to enforce, like uh, Sheldon Emery said, Pete Peters, like it says in Deuteronomy. Even if you're going to have a king, if you're going to have these presidents and senators or whatever, they're, so, they're not supposed to be writing law. How can they? How dare a man think he can write law when the Bible says that only God can write law? That's what it says. He's our lawgiver. We've already got the law written down. It's in our Bibles. Uh, well, that's what they're supposed to be enforcing. That's we need. The, the, um, the lesson in this life is, is that, and, and I've discussed this at great length in my Romans presentations recently, is that man learn what sin is and what rebellion from God is and what its consequences are. And that is the reason for our current and, and historical experience. The, um, the end game is that Babylon falls, and only God can be our king. We're to come out from this world. And the best model that we have for Christian governance after the fall of Babylon is 
the model we find in the book of Judges, in my humble opinion. But there's a problem with that, too, because even in the book of Judges, the, um, the, even in the book of Judges, the failure in Judges chapter 17 and Judges chapter 21 is expressed where it says that there was no king in Israel, and that meaning that not everybody was even worshiping God ostensibly, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So there was problems then, too, with immorality and, and, and um, men discarding God's law. Yes, sir. And, it, and there was also the judges were corrupt. They were not uh, uh, judging or, or dealing with the things that uh, should have been judged. They were not, uh, there was a problem with that, and that's why they said, just give us a, a status monarchy, a king like the, country, the people around us. And it upset God. It upset him. He said, they're rejecting me. It, they told, he, Yahweh told Samuel, he said, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They don't want him. So I would still would rather have, and I, as, a, as a Christian anarchist, anyone who's a Christian that understands anarchy, we would see the book of Judges for what it is. It was a tribalistic theocracy, and what united the people and kept them united and strong was their culture and their heritage, and somewhere along the line, they lost that. Uh, and we have to learn that that's what we want. We, we've had it the other way, and we don't want it. So, you know, you're absolutely correct. Um, we, are, we are in this life to learn what sin is and realize, you know what, <laughs> okay, God's given us free choice, and, and you know what, we don't want that stuff. We, <laughs> we, we don't want the bad things. <laughs> we want God. Yeah, um, you alluded to something a little earlier when I did not want to interrupt you, and you talked about um, how these tribal chieftains would rise up and, and rule their people in times of migration, in times of peril, in times of war. That, that's exactly the judge's model. The children yes, of evil would do Israel. The, the, the children of Israel would do evil in the sight of the law. And the Philistines or the Moabites or the Edomites would oppress them for, for 20 years or 30 years or 40 years. And, and when the children of Israel repented, Yahweh would raise up a leader, a Gideon, a Samson, to yes. rally the troops and, and to defeat the enemy. And that leader would have um, the powers, more or less, of a dictator to wage the, the war and, and to throw the yoke off, the, the alien yoke off. And, and once the threat was gone, the, 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 the nation would revert to the model of, of, of government with judges and, and God being king. You know, that's repeated. That, that pattern is repeated in history when Israel is in their dispersions. The Romans of the early Republic period, they did that exact thing. In, in they, they, they had a republic, and, and it, it was um, the, the nation was ruled by the Senate, and, and, and they had proconsuls and consuls. But and, and this is before the empire. This is for 500 years before Julius Caesar, the Roman Republic. And, and when there was times of peril or times of war or danger, then the Senate would elect a dictator, and he had um, carte blanche authority to rule the people and wage the war. At the end of the war, the dictator was expected 
to give up his dictatorial powers and return them to the people. That, that, that model did last. The Roman Republic did last and thrive for 500 years. Of, of course, eventually we had Julius Caesar, and, and he changed the whole thing and turned it into a tyranny, and, and, and um, the Republic was done. The Spartans did the same thing. The Spartans were a, 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 um, a, a, a tyranny-free, king-free people, except in times of peril, times of war, and they would elect two kings to lead the nation and, and to have full powers until the, the danger had passed. The Spartans, of course, were shorter-lived. They were constantly at war with the Athenians, and, and their empire just didn't last that long because of the constant war with the Athenians. So, so that, that model was followed, even in not only in, in, in Northern Europe and the migrations and, and the tribal traditions that carried over from the Israelite period, but, but also in, in, in um, classical antiquity as well. I just thought I'd mention that. Right. These, these war chiefs, like I said, my name in Gaelic means, uh, you know, small king, a small chief. Um, that's, uh, but, you know, William Wallace, that, he, he was uh, very much like that, Robert the Bruce. Th- that's exactly what they were in times of war, uh, you unite under a, 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 a king or a chieftain. Now, um, when I was, uh, let's see, I was 17 years old, and I turned 18. I, didn't really, I already had my driver's license, but I didn't think much about it. Um, when I turned 18, I got this thing in the mail telling me that I had to go register for the Selective Service. And I thought to myself, you know, this is weird. Uh, it's kind of weird. And then you get these things in the mail every year telling you you have to file income tax, you know, whether you make any money or not, you know, or you have to renew your driver's license, or when you buy a car, you have to do it. And I was always thinking to myself, why in the world, who are these strangers sending me stuff in the mail just saying, hey, you've got to do this, hey, you've got to do that? Um, that was always kind of weird to me. I didn't understand. what makes. I'm not bothering nobody. I'm not doing anything, so I'm not... Uh, why is somebody coming into my life and treating me that, oh, if you don't do this, just like here about a year ago, I got a notice in the mail. I, I, I don't vote, but I got a notice in the mail that um, uh, they wanted me for jury duty. And I love the wording of it. I made a video about it on my older channel before the YouTube censors uh, decided I wasn't kosher enough once again and once again deleted my channel. But I made a, a video or two about it, and I said, you know, it's just interesting. Uh, have you people ever noticed that when you get these jury notices, there's these big, well, in this one it was red lettering, but, you know, this big threat. If you don't, you know, respond to this, blah, blah, blah. And basically what they should be saying is if you don't respond to this, we're going to send men with guns to you and, uh, you know, take you captive and throw you in a, in a, in a warehouse. <laughs> you know, and it's like, what, who are these people? How is that? That is so absurd uh, I would I would uh, fight and defend my people and do my part, uh, you know, to defend uh, my community or what have you, uh, and, and be part of my community if they need me. Uh, but uh, I I I don't understand. Somebody just tells me what I got to do. You were talking about electing um, the Confederacy. Uh, some of the people listening, uh, they would probably know more, even more so about this than me, but. Uh, the Confederacy, when it began up the Confederate Army, Confederate States Army, a lot of the uh, officers and stuff were elected. Um, uh, they were put in a position their men would elect who they wanted. 
all the militias of the colonial period and uh, you know up to the uh, Revolutionary War, you could elect your leaders in the Kukulos, the Ku Klux Klan, first era all the way up. Um, you elect your EC. You you can elect certain men to be, and the EC is basically he's the the leader of the Clavern, really. And you can elect in, in the first era Ku Klux you know, during Reconstruction period. Uh, that was the guerrilla theater. Um, you can elect these men, so. Yes, there is an election, and then you say, you know, I will listen to your, this is wartime. You, you, you know, this is not a democracy or anything like that. But it was simply to get a mission done. But in your everyday life, people didn't send you paperwork and harass you in your everyday life. When there is wartime, then, yeah, you've got to find out who's, who's going to be a good warrior leader for your militia or whatever. And then, yeah, you follow orders, and you, and you work together as a team. Well, well, the bureaucracy as we know it is only one huge parasitical class that oppresses the people. Even the founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin, absolutely despised the bureaucracy of Mother England. And, and he wrote about how they had offices for every purpose. They had a bureaucrat and how those bureaucrats harassed the people what were their regulations and all these little details that had to be taken care of and, and what a burden they were on everyday life. Right. You talk about Thomas Paine. Um, some of these quotes here from these uh, gentlemen from that time. Thomas Paine said, government, even in its best state, is but a necessary evil. I disagree. I don't believe there is such a thing as necessary evil. In its worst state, an intolerable one. Of course, George, George Washington, he said, Government is not reason, it is not eloquent, it is force. Like fire, it is a dangerous servant, a fearful master, never for a moment should be left to irresponsible action. Um, government is not reason. I even disagree with that. Government of God is actually very much reason. It's harmony, it's, it's beauty. Uh, governments of men, no, they're not. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson said, experience has shown, I guess it means history, that even under the best forms of government, those entrusted with power have, in time and by slow operations, perverted it into tyranny. Thomas Jefferson knew – he was also an anti-federalist – he knew that in time uh, what would happen. It's just a natural progression because man makes, wants to make up how, how society is going to be run instead of just looking to the scriptures. <laughs> you know? um, and, and I do believe that uh, – you know, like with your local militia or something, electing someone, I, 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 I get that. But I do also believe that Yahweh God uh, does, has, and always will raise up among us men, anointed men. The scripture says, uh, let every man that speaks, speak as the oracle of God. It is my personal opinion, and you are not the only one, but I personally believe Yahweh God has risen you up, uh, Brother Bill, to do what you do. Uh, there are certain men that have different anointings for different purposes. Well, well I'm humbled. That the, in, in my paper, there is no, politi no political solution. That the only form of government that I gave any credence to at all that we should be involved in, if we so choose to be involved, is small local government. Amen. Government, city government. But that's where we could make a difference. Statewide governments, national governments, I, I understand there are people amongst my listeners and friends that have run for office to make a point or, or, or to, um, to make a statement. But to me, 
They're all I totally, I totally support that. I totally support that. Co-opted by the international merchants. There's no use for us to get involved in them. We are not going to make a difference. We should separate ourselves from those things. Right. But, I do believe in, any, in resistance, and if a brother feels like uh, he needs to run for a political office to make a point, then God bless him. If he does it prayerfully and he feels like he needs to do that, as long as he knows that it's not to validate the satanic Babylonian government state system, but he's doing it to make a point, God bless him. Right. We should be teaching that the state system, the Babylonian system, and, and all these statist systems are our, that they're part of our punishment from God for our Amen. disobedience, for our failure to love and follow him. Amen, brother. Exactly. There's no other reason for national or, or even that these big statewide governments, there's no reason for them except for our own punishment for not recognizing that Yahweh God is our lawgiver and our king. Just like why are we flooded with these other races? Because they're another aspect of that punishment against us for not recognizing that Yahweh God is our, law, our Lord, our lawgiver, and our king. And because we have chased the idols which the Jews have set up in the high places, those, are t those two, they are our punishment. So all these things are punishing us. And we're, we shouldn't get engaged with our punishment. We shouldn't, but we shouldn't um, try to control our punishment by running for office. Well, we shouldn't try to defeat our punishment by voting against it. The Bible tells us to repent, hearken to Yahweh our God, and, and change our behavior, and he will lift these punishments from us. Now, I did something a few years back, and it was a controversial thing, but it was just something I personally did. It was just something I had to do. I registered to vote, and I did it, and then I voted for Barack Obama the first time he ran. And I did it, and I laughed as I, as I hit the button on the voting machine, and a woman looked up at me. And I did it because, you know, America has decided that they love uh, the, the non-white so much, uh, the non-white races. They, they, they love all of this so much then okay, you need to have some more of it. Here, you like it so damn much, have some more. I like that. Yeah, it is a punishment. It absolutely is a punishment. Now, summarize for us what you think the, the, the um, let's say Babylon's not here, let's say the other races are all in the lake of fire or wherever you want to imagine them to be. They're just not with us. Well, what do you think is... That the ideal, can you summarize the ideal day-to-day -day government, how, how Christians should interact and organize their communities? Oh, wow. I have uh, different ideas, but uh, I do want to uh, purchase my, want to fix my say, but the fact that I trust my people that once you know, we were to attain that, I trust my people that they would know what is best for their locale because certain Areas you have certain specific issues with uh, the land or whatever's the industry there or whatever, uh, how many people you got, some of the local traditions and things like that. I trust my people can get this right. Um, I, as far as just uh, just in a generic sense, the way I imagine 
it would be a tribalistic or localistic system first. Everyone is the police. Everyone's a judge. Um, uh, in, in the scriptures, when someone was you know, worthy of death, uh, they did something worthy of a death penalty, there wasn't a certain person that was an executioner. There wasn't a certain person that was a cop. Uh, you know, it, it's matter of fact, in the scripture, we are told in, in Yahweh's law that if we caught our own family members uh, practicing idolatry, we would be the first ones to cast the stone. Right. Um, we are we are all police officers. We're all the military. We're all we are the government of God is within us. Yeshua said that the kingdom of God is within us. So it would be a local thing. The government would not send you papers arbitrarily until you got to register registered um, your car. The government would not stick its nose in your life because you are the government unless you did something that's a crime a biblically uh, explained out crime, a crime that we know and naturally instinctually is wrong, theft, murder, uh, vandalism, attempted murder, rape, attempted rape, those type of things, no one would mess with you. Or if you were doing something that was detrimental to the community, like poisoning the water or doing something to the, to the, the wheat fields or something and, and damaging the land, or if you were doing something that was detrimental to your community, like trying to... Uh, promote adultery, perverted activities, race mixing, homosexuality, those type of things, trying to mock and undermine the local culture, the Christian uh, traditions and cultures in that area by you know, some sort of humanistic or paganistic ways. Other than that, you'd be free because I believe in Christ. We are free to create. Let me tell you, um, I really love my race. I love the white race. I sit back and I marvel at, and I'm, of course, I'm frustrated with my people too, but I marvel at the white race because of their creativity, because of their inventiveness, because of their daring. I, I marvel at the artist, the musician, the, 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 uh, the inventor, the, the carpenter, the mechanic, uh, men like you, Bill, that just, you have this, and I've known men like you, in the past, they just have this vast knowledge that you can just go to, and they're walking encyclopedias of history and stuff. Men like you, scholars, all the different people that understand health and, and uh, how to t- help you with your body or whatever, our race, each person of our race has something to offer. And I believe that, that freedom is, that's in Christ, you're to be free to create, to make, to be inventive. If you're a little what we would call a little eccentric, but you're totally harmless. I love the, the white people that are, they're a little eccentric, but they're totally harmless. They're not doing anything immoral, and they're very creative. They're, they're kind-hearted. I like the outside-the-box type people. I like the people that everyone thinks are weird. Hell, some people think I'm weird, uh, my appearance alone. But I believe that, I, I love my people. I, the other day, I had somebody uh, drop me off at Walmart, and I did my Walmart shopping. And people always talk about the white trash at Walmart. You know, a lot of things are your perception and your attitude. Um, I'm sitting there, and I had to sit about 30 minutes waiting for my ride to come pick me up. And I'm sitting, it's a sunny day. And I'm just sitting there, it's the middle of, it's a work day, a, a weekday. And I'm just sitting there, and I'm watching different white folk go in and out, because I live in mostly a white area. White folk, moms with children, old white folk, the old man with the old lady, and they help each other out of the car. The, the, the redneck, that obviously he's just in a hurry. He hopped out of, out of his pickup truck, goes into Walmart, grabs something, comes out. 
the people, the, the, the more yuppie kind of guys with slacks, and they're slinging their keys around and as they go into Walmart. And I'm like, this is my people, and it's awesome to see the different walks of life. And, you know, you wonder what's going on in their life, and you wonder what kind of person they are and things like that. I marvel. I've been to um, just different types of events or just the grocery store, and you see these white mothers with, like, you know, they got, like, five or six little white kids, you know. And it's just and you see how she's calm with her children and how she acts, and her children are well-behaved. I marvel at that. I marvel at the elderly couples that, uh, that get along. I, I, I marvel at my people and the beauty and the things that they are so capable of and, and the positive things that can be done. And a lot of people don't, they don't, you know, they say, Bill, that do what you love and love what you do. Even if you're not making a lot of money doing it, if you love what you do, you're going to be happy. A lot of our people aren't able to do what they love or what they have a God-given talent to do because, you know, the way the system is, the way our, our industrial machine-like system is, and we don't encourage. I encourage. Um, I encourage brothers that have musical talent. Um, I encourage uh, brothers and sisters that have any kind of talents to pursue them. And I want to see them become successful and obtain that. And in a Christian society, our people, yeah, it would be a little slower. It would be a slower life, a little bit slower. But there would be more freedom. There would be more respect and love towards our folk. And, you know, the redneck would love the yuppie, and the, and the, the yuppie would love the, 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 you know, God is no respecter of persons. That scripture is in reference to economic standing, social standing. Uh, being an ex-Judeo as a teenager, people would use that verse to say that, you know, God doesn't care about your race. <laughs> but when you read the context, of course, it's talking about your economic and social standing. God is no respecter. I love all my people. I don't care if they're poor or rednecks or they're super rich or they're highly intelligent, whatever they are. In freedom, our people, we're not free to be hedonistic animals and, you know, behaving. When I talk about freedom, I'm talking about freedom to go and to come and to travel and to move. The government doesn't own the land. God owns the land, and he gave it to us. No, no man has a right to tell another man uh, where he can travel, when he can travel, how he can travel, uh, where he, you know, the government claims to own all the land. And so that's why there's so many of our people in an anarchist society, no one would be homeless, no one would be without land. Because the land is, the, is, is God's. Well, well, that's absolute. That that's very good. That's absolutely true. What we should be a self-governing people. We should be a local governing people. That's the Book of Judges. That's yeah. You know, there's a series of things of bad things described which happened in the Book of Judges, and the Book of Judges covers a period of 450 years. And I see the bad things not as the norm for that 450-year period. The bad things that were recorded were the exceptions which occurred during that 450-year period. But for the most part, I see the norm, what, nothing was recorded because there were no bad things, because people were more or less living in, in harmony that the way that a tribal society should exist. So, so I don't see those bad things as the, as the norm. I see them as as the exception, and that's why we have very, very little history 
of, of the, the book of Judges. And, and, and it's a very condensed book. There's very little actual history written into the book to fill a 450-year period. So, so the, the, um, the Dark Ages in Europe were the same way, where most of our people lived under tribal chieftains. And, and of course, what, with competing, those tribes competing with each other for, for land and, and space, it may have not always been pretty, but the Dark Ages are called Dark Ages because very little history is recorded. However, that they weren't as bad as the, the, the Jews and the beast systems would lead us to believe. Just Great point. the American West. You know, how much does the average American know about um, the Dakotas or Montana and, and, and the but as those places were being settled in, in the um, mid to late 19th century, we, we know very little. But we, we can see from the result that the people that lived there must have lived with each other in, in a virtual spirit of Christian cooperation. And, and that's how we should live. Bill, you will, uh, you will, I'm so glad you brought up the so-called Wild West. That is a Jewish thing. Uh, a lot of anarchists talk about that, that we're always told that the West was wild and woolly and all this, that, and the other. And there's anarchists, non-statists, that are, you know, Israelite anarchists, non-statists, are disgusted with the system. They say, well, we're always told it's the wild West, but that doesn't make any sense. And you brought, that's an awesome point that we don't know much about it. Just like the period of Judges, I agree with you. I, I believe for the most part it was indeed a harmonious um, system of communities, local communities. I wanted to read a – I had a couple of short quotes I wanted to read from Balkanen because I don't know if you know it or not, before he became just a flat-out non-status anarchist, he was a nationalist. He said in his, um, his writing, Statism and Anarchy, that he wrote in 1873, every people, however tiny, has its own specific character, style of speech, way of thinking and working. Precisely this character, this style of life, constitutes its nationality, which is the sum total of its historic life, aspirations, and circumstances. Every people, like every individual, are purpose what they are and have the incontestable right to be themselves. Now, there's a lot of people that come from the, I know myself, there's a lot of people that come from these different, uh, like the Southern Nationalist or Southern National Separatist type movements, and they're concerned with preserving just their local traditions and ways. And I understand that. I believe that's a God-given thing. I believe I, it's not an accident that Yahweh God broke Israel up into 12 tribes, and they all had their own ensigns or flags, and if people watch my videos, they know I like flags. <laughs> um, he also said, uh, Balkanen also said, uh, I demand only one thing, that every tribe, great and small, be given the full opportunity and right to act according to its will. Now, he also, of course, lived in the 1800s, but he was in Russia. Uh, he lived during the period of the war between the states and America, like Josiah Warren and Spooner, but of course he lived in Russia. He also sympathized with the South and uh, its desire to be separate. True non-statists understand and respect local communities and cultures. You know, you can get... Uh, we can talk about how Ireland is different from Scotland in culture and traditions, but even in Ireland or Scotland, uh, I don't know, Northern Ireland, uh, Southern Ireland, or 
you know, one region of Scotland, another, they're all going to have their little local traditions, their own, you know, annual parades and things they celebrate and things like that. And to me, that's awesome. That's, that's just wonderful. We're going to have to, um, as a people going forward, with Christian identity doctrine, if we're going to establish what Christianity, what real Christianity is going to be going forward, because the system's going to fall. Amen. And Christian identity is going to grow as it does. And we have to present a mature religious paradigm. There's no doubt. We have that obligation to our God at this time to develop a mature religious paradigm. We, we yeah. have to think out that these, um, that these theories and, 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 and determine what a righteous government should be and, and, and teach that and preponderate that so that when Babylon does fall, our people do have a game plan in their minds. They do know what they have to do with their brethren in order to survive the fall of the system. Because white Christians do not, if the system falls and they do not love one another, they are not going to survive. If they don't know how to govern their own little communities and, 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 and organize them and, and rally them against their common enemies, they're not going to survive. Amen, brother. Um, you were, uh, one other thing is people will find in Deuteronomy, I won't read the verses, but Deuteronomy 17, 8 through uh, 12, they'll find an example of this arbitration, what would be called by, you know, anarchists and, and non-statists and voluntarists is the arbitration court. That is a principle that even though these white folk, like Larkin Rose, he's a well-known anarchist, I look at him as an Israelite who has this instinct because I have a quote from him, and I don't have it handy. He's not a Christian, but he, spoke, he has spoken favorably toward Christianity, and he says he doesn't know of anything that Jesus Christ said that he disagreed with. Larkin Rose, I think he's a white Israelite, who has this urging desire. Now, Bill, what you were talking about, that's why the theme on my website, brotherryan.com, and we hope within the next month or so that the website gets a lot easier to navigate and, and, and things. But when you go to my website, the header is a looks like a, a bombed-out, destroyed city, and the background, the mat uh, background, is of a destroyed uh, city, but it's a sunrise. And it's a resurrection. I believe that things are going to happen in the system, amen, is doomed to fail and fall. And when it does fall, I believe, I've, I've had this drive in me for a, a number of years now, and it's, it's just, it's, even before I got on the Internet, I used to pray. I'd lay at, at night uh, to go to sleep, and I would pray about this, and I felt like I wanted to go further and to share what I feel shot up in my bones. I, it's, a, I want, it's a message that I just, I, I want to share with people that I believe that we have got to understand that we don't need to be looking for man-made status systems. We need to go by God's governing system, which is local. It's run by uh, the natural law in our hearts, with the spirit of the law in our hearts. The letter of it is in the Bible. And we need this type of natural, folkish, non-status local societies with uh, ruled or run and organized and governed, whatever you want to call it, 
by God's law, and we know it. I believe us Israelites know it naturally and instinctually, as the Scripture says. One thing that I wanted to add is a little off of that topic, but it's a verse that I want to point out to your listeners, Bill. Isaiah 5 and 8, it says, Woe unto them that join house to house, that lay field to field, till there be no place that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. To me, that's a condemnation of these people that buy up all this land, more land than they'd ever use, these corporations or whatever, that buy up all this land when God has given the land to his children. And like I said, there is no reason why any Israelite should be homeless and not have a place to build a little house or put a tent on for that matter. This land is given to us by our God and not for everyone to just buy up field and field where no one lives around them. Well, well, right. This bee system is, is absolutely corrupt. The the, um, the dragon behind the beast is, is trying to get, trying to force every last one of us into his system so that life is reduced to a series of economic decisions. And once our lives are reduced to a series of economic decisions, the only hope we have is um, coupons from the B system so that we could make economic choices which which are, are, are considered better, right? Poker, Pepsi, Chevy or Ford, and, and Budweiser or Sam Adams. It, it doesn't matter. That's all they want our lives reduced to. And they want us all inside that one box so that we are dependent on their system, their pharmaceuticals, that their um, that their educational institutions, which really are nothing about education at all, and 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 they want us locked into that paradigm so that we are fully controlled. Right. So they want to reduce us to, uh, like I said, uh, I've got a debate that um, I. I got off of a, a guy's anarchist, uh, his YouTube, and I uploaded it to mine because I thought it was an interesting debate for those that are a little bit more uh, interested in the nuts and bolts of things, and they like to look into the history of anarchist philosophy and thought and natural law and things like that. How it coincides with the Bible, that they'll see it very clearly. But uh, I have a debate on there between an anarchist. It's, a formal, it's just the audio, but it's a formal debate between an anarchist and a communist. And the, the anarchist is clearly tells me, since you want to reduce everyone to be a worker, anarchists aren't interested in being workers. We want to be people. <laughs> but um, it's not only be a worker. What you're talking about is reducing us to be consumers. Right. Right. If you, it, well, well, if you stand on the, on, on the left-hand side of the box that the Jew built, you're a, you're, you're a worker. If you stand on the right-hand side of the box that the Jew built, you're a consumer. In, in either case, the Jew wins. Sure, exactly, because he thinks he's a merchant. <laughs> Canaanite means merchant. He's a merchant. He thinks economically. He thinks that way. And our people, um, that we have been trapped by uh, the whole idea of, of consumerism, capitalism, mercantilism, instead of saying, you know what makes a society, because all statist philosophies are based on economic philosophies, whereas Non-statism is based on the appreciation, like even Malkinan understood, the appreciation of natural law and appreciation of natural societies that are, organize themselves 
and our, we carry on traditions, where we respect our elders, where we respect one another, where we, we – the Bible tells us to seek one another's prosperity. The Bible tells us to think of our brother higher than ourselves, to even be willing to give our lives uh, for our brothers. And to love one another and to love your people. Like I said, I'm sitting outside of Walmart not too long ago, a few days ago, and I'm looking out. I, just, I, I do that sometimes. I guess you call it people watching. And I see these white folk, and they're just of all different walks of life, and I love them all. That's my people. Well, well absolutely. We should love all of our white brethren. And we, I wrote about this in a paper I read. I, I wrote, I'm sorry, called Christianity is Nationalism. Christian Identity um, adherents even tend to despise um, white people that aren't Christian identity. We, we shouldn't despise any of our white kindred. But we, being Christian identity and having a higher understanding of Scripture and the purpose of God, we should seek to be a shining city on the hill so that we can draw our white brethren to us. And they'll come to us if we express better ideas. Right, and ones that show them that, as Jesus said, the kingdom of God is truly is in them. And I like to point these things out. I use the, the Latin terms mens rea and actus reus and natural law principles, and they'll go, yeah, that makes all sense. And then I'll point to the Bible and they'll say, I bet you thought the Bible was had all these do's and don'ts, but let me show you what the Bible really tells you not to do, such as not the buying up the land, the charging of interest, to respect your elders, to um, love your people, to help the widows, the orphans, the poor, not to murder, not to steal. And they'll, they'll say, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Uh, I wrote an article. It was actually a, a guest article. I was asked to write this a long time ago. And I titled it, it's on my website now, I post on my website, but this was a few years back I wrote this, titled Racial Socialism Equals Christianity. And it's kind of, uh, it's before I read your article, Spill, it's, it's kind of the same thing. As I show that National Socialism in, indeed uh, has biblical basis. And I speak about that in that article, Racial Socialism Equals Christianity, on my website. Absolutely. And, and, and we should, if we're both read in the same areas being white, God-fearing men, we should, not all the time, but at least most of the time, come to similar conclusions on, sure. on the important things, on race, on governance, on God, on Christ. We should come to, the, to similar conclusions. Exactly. Well, it's of the same mind. You Christians have the same mind, and sometimes we think... Uh, one another, I found through my, my life, that sometimes we think that one another's in disagreement, but actually we're expressing the same things just in a different way or misunderstand one another. A lot of times we're, we're more in agreement with our, with our brothers than we realize sometimes. <laughs> right. We have to look at the terms. And, and, you know, like when I said before, you say anarchy, a lot of people are turned off by that because they have the wrong impression of how you define anarchy. Right, but some, a lot of people are turned off by the term Christianity. A lot of people are turned off by Christian identity, especially because when you, when you, when you Wikipedia Christian identity, if you don't know or you Google it, uh, you, you, know, you get all the weird definitions and explanations. But uh, the word Christianity turns people off. The reason I use anarchy is to, uh, to appeal to those that it will appeal to. To others, I'll use the term voluntarism. 
Uh, sometimes I'll use the term libertarianism, but that's with a small L. That's not uh, the political party libertarianism, open borders, anything goes type. That's something different. <laughs> you know, Bill, I wanted to I tell you that when we when we look at history, and again, you're you're you really know your history. When you look at history and you look at things, you see the this natural urging of our people, this progression, this awakening to identity. Uh, before you and I were born, uh, men were waking up to the the identity truth, Israel identity truth. As we're growing, and you know, you you're you're a scholar, you're sharing to what would be to some people very shocking and new things to the Christian identity uh, community that are wonderful truths. And some people, it's a little, it's like when you try to get somebody to try a new food, uh, they may, you know, kind of flinch at first, but then they decide they like it if they just try it. And, uh, you know, you're introducing certain doctrines that, truths that kind of freak people out at first until they kind of look into it. Well, it's the same thing what I'm doing is I'm saying, my brothers and my sisters, the law is in you. There really is freedom in Christ. The law is within you. You know what's right or wrong. You need to stand upon that. Stop looking for cults of personality, these politicians, which are nothing but used car salesmen, and all this foolishness, and men to, to elect men to be legislators, to write law. That's, man cannot make law. But I, was gonna, I just want to real quick, Bill, if I can, I want to point out some things that I had noticed, and I made notes. You know, I don't know nothing about this Catherine Lee Bates. She wrote America the Beautiful. Um, but it was interesting that some of the lyric of the line, uh, she says, Amer- the song goes, America, America, God shed his grace on thee, and crown thy good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea. Oh, beautiful for pilgrim feet. And, you know, we know in Romans ten fifteen how beautiful the feet of them that bring the gospel. Um, you know, I, I look at this, uh, it goes on down, the, the liberty and law. And then the, this song, this land is your land. And I just look at some of the lines of it. This land is your land. This land is my land. And it's a, you know, and to me, it's like this instinctual craving of our people. We know that there is something exceptional about America. Um, I don't mean the American exceptionalism of the political state, what they say, but there is in, indeed something exceptional about America. I do believe in manifest destiny of this country. I know you do too, Bill. And it, I want to share that with, with uh, my fellow white Christians. It, it's um, absolutely. And, and if every white family had, had 10 acres, that they'd still be left enough room in, in, in the continental United States alone for hundreds of years of growth. Oh, of course. I, we, we, but my, what really breaks my heart is to see white folk that are, I mean, homeless. I mean, they're, they're, the banks take their homes and, and they're renting and, 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 and all this one. We should be able to own and have our own plot of land somewhere and have plenty of space for all of us to have. You know, I love the country. I don't like to live in the city or even the suburbs. I live out in a rural area now. I grew up in a rural area in Texas, um, but the, you know you can have ten acres or, or an acre, just whatever. But your own plot of land, your own space, it, because this is our land. But instead, the governments and the banks and the realtors, which are an extension of the banking system, just like the insurance agency is an extension of the banking system. 
but they claim they own the land. Someone owns the land you've got to buy it from. And uh, that, to me, that's what the government has done, the realtors and the banking system has done, is they buy up what it says in Isaiah 5, 8 not to do. They buy up the fields where no one's around them. They buy it all up, in other words, and that's taking our land. But this land is, is uh, our, our land as a people. Well, well, soon, so soon the entire planet will be our land. As that's <laughs> Amen. What Christians have to look forward to. And Amen. There won't be anybody else to have to deal with. That that's the Christian promise. I, I want to really thank you for being here tonight. I hope this has been edifying for for the people that will listen to it in the podcast and and the people at Christagenia this evening. Um, it's been a real pleasure and an honor for me. Well, thank you for having me on. <laughs> on July 25th, and, and I think we'll have, um, an, a, well, a wonderful program then, too. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. We'll be talking about Christian identity doctrine, um, maturing Christian identity so that it can go forward. Uh, I believe that's the... the the, the best way I could summarize the topic of the program we plan. Right. Marching forward, growing and maturing. Absolutely. Brother Ryan, thank you again. Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. Thank you, Brother Bill. I, I, I really was an honor. <laughs> Down in Utah, thank you for listening, everybody. Praise Yahweh. A young man about 21.